Hey, good morning, y'all. Hey, I want to give you one more little announcement. I guess little. It's not really little. It's a little bigger. Uh, you know, we had our first uh, midweek gathering, our first Wednesday gathering a few weeks ago. I want to tell you this, the next one we're doing is October 16th, and I want to let you know uh, a couple things about that. Somebody has, you know, the, that gathering, we, you know, we get together and we eat together and we have a little bit of a devotion. It's just really hanging out time together. Well, the one on the 16th, somebody uh, donated, said they wanted to pay for all of the food, and so we're having zombie pig on the 16th, so where it costs $5 a person, it's not going to cost anything because this person that said, I want to buy the food, and I don't want anybody to have to pay for it. Now, we're not advertising that publicly, putting it out on Facebook, because we'll end up with all kind of, you know, a 1,000 people coming here to eat zombie pig. So what we need you to do, though, is, uh, you know, this today and maybe next Sunday, there's a sign-up sheet at the Connections desk. Sign up for that. We need for you to sign up for that so we know how much food to get from, uh, from zombie pig. Number two thing is this. If this is your first time here, welcome to Church on the Trail. Uh, Elliot and Katie Long are standing right here. They've got a little, um, little welcome kit that kind of gives you the DNA of our church. If you'll raise your hand if this, is, if this is your first time or if it's your second or third time and you've never gotten your hands on one of those, we'd ask for you to do that, and it'll kind of answer some questions about our church. The third thing is this. Y'all stand up as we get started this morning. Stand up, give somebody a fist bump, shake hands, uh, hug, some show a little bit of love somehow. Does it look like it's sitting on the cross? So as y'all are fist bumping and all that stuff, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to begin. Um, so look, we are in, and you don't have to stop, uh, but we're in week nine of, of a series we're calling Identity Crisis. You saw it on the screen. We're walking through the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, or really the area, the churches around that area in Turkey. What's Turkey today? Um, and I want to ask y'all, as we start today, I want to ask you a question, a general question, then I want to spend, you know, the next 35 or 40 minutes or whatever it is sort of answering that question. And the question is this, what is it that makes Christianity unique? What is it that makes Christianity different from all of these other world religions? Because we live in a pluralistic religious culture, a pluralistic society that says that uh, all religions are essentially the same that all roads at the end of the day lead to the same place. Different brands, same product. You know, Sam's Cola and Czech Cola and Coca-Cola all taste the same. That's what a pluralistic society looks like. And do they all taste the same? I don't think they all taste the same. The last couple of weeks we have been uh, in Chapter 4 of, uh, of Paul's letter to, to the Ephesians, and much of that chapter... And then chapter 5 deals with behaviors, how we act, what we, what we do. Be pure, be honest, be, uh, be in control of your tongue. Don't let anger roll into sin. Tell the truth. Um, don't steal, you know, share. You know, all, be forgiving, be kind, be tenderhearted. All of those things are all noble actions, all of them. And you could probably say that there's nothing really unique about those 
uh, about all of those behaviors that would delineate them from Hinduism or Buddhism or Judaism or whatever ism there is, don't all religions sort of teach the same values? There's nothing necessarily remarkable in and of themselves, those things. But I believe what is remarkable is the why. Why the Christian ought to act the way that he does. Why the Christian ought to act in a certain way. In the first part of Ephesians 5, Paul shows me and you that we are uh, folks that the gospel can change and make us want to act in a certain way. Emily Dickinson said that the heart wants what the heart wants. And you know, the gospel agrees with that. The heart does most definitely want what the heart wants. But if you force the heart, if you force the heart to do something that is kind of um, against what it wants, it's going to feel trapped. It's going to feel like you put it in a box. It's not going to feel it's not, not going to feel right. So forcing me or you to do something that is inconsistent with our desires, that's inconsistent with what we want, I'm going to say that that is religion. And that's why for most people, religion is a drag because it forces you or it compels you or it requires of you to do stuff that you just don't really want to do. Maybe it threatens you with whatever if you don't do what they say to do. Now, the gospel, the gospel, what that last song, Jesus changes everything. As a matter of fact, the, the title of this message is that the gospel changes everything. So, the, so gospel change is radically different. And I have said this, I don't know, five or six times in the last month or so, that it's, this is all, everything we've talked about for the last probably eight weeks is that, that it is a heart change. The gospel changes us by changing our, our heart. And when it changes our heart, we begin to want to do what God wants. You know, it's God goggles. And I had a friend of mine that said, you're always putting God goggles on. You're all, and I said, well, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with that. I want to look, I want my worldview to be God's worldview. When he changes my heart, I do look at life. I look at uh, relationships. I look at Susan. I look at my kids. I look at y'all. I look at everything different because I took off an old set of lenses and put on a new set of lenses. The gospel changes me and you internally, and then our behavior, external sort of behavior, naturally changes because of that change inside. If you remember chapter four, we talked about putting, uh, taking off the old self and putting on the new self. And maybe y'all grew up Maybe. I know Susan and I have talked about this. I know she did. Grew up in, a, in, in what maybe we would say is a, uh, is a do church. I grew up in a do synagogue. You had to do this and you had to do that. You were compelled to do this and you better dress a certain way when you walked in the door and you got to do and do and do and do and do. This is, it's this external obedience to, to rules and to regulations that and they may not intend for it to be this way, but it, it, it's, it's preached at you this way that that trumps any internal change. In fact, for me, growing up in a, in a Jewish and growing up in a, in a synagogue, internal change was never, that wasn't even on the table. That wasn't even what was discussed. It was you got to do this and this. Y'all, that is moralism. And gospel change is the total opposite of that. Your behavior changes because you change. 
right? You're made alive, so you act alive. You can't be commanded to be alive. You can't be forced to be alive. It's like a fruit tree can't be commanded to bear fruit. The fruit tree, the apple tree, produces apples because it's a living uh, apple tree. It's a living fruit tree, so it bears fruit. It just naturally does that. Living people don't need to be commanded to breathe. We breathe because, because we're alive. I mean, I hope that makes sense. So, how does the gospel bring about that kind of change? How does it do it? Last week I told you all something that I felt like was kind of profound, and it's simple, and it's, it's like the totally obvious, but things are attracted to things that are attractive to them, right? You, things are attracted to things that are attractive to them. And here's a thought for you today. And that is this, that the gospel changes that which is attractive. The gospel changes what is attractive to you. The gospel makes God become more attractive than the sin. I want Him more than I want the sin. You know, anything, sacrifice is sacrificing something you love for something that you love more. Right? And so the gospel changes what is most attractive to me. And I want Him more than I want sin. It's like this. You can't have this body if you want this more than this body. That was supposed to be funny. <laughs> because obviously I want this more than I want the body, right? <laughs> Here's the deal. The gospel, unlike other religions, is not first and foremost a prescription for what to do. The gospel is an account of the, the crazy, ginormous, unbelievable love that God has for you. The gospel reveals who He says you are, which is usually in total contradiction to what the world says that you are, and it displays the way that He purchased your salvation. Every other religion on the planet makes a demand, and the demand is that you obey and then you'll be accepted. But the gospel says to me and you, you're accepted not because of anything that you've done. You can't do anything, so not because of anything that you've done, but only because of what Christ has done. And because of that, because of what Christ has done for you, now go out and obey. That is a radically different message than every other religion on the planet. It is a gift, and it's a free gift. And that gift is called righteousness. We get His righteousness for free. I'm not righteous when, I, when I'm saved. I get His righteousness. Genesis 15, 6, talking about Abraham. It says, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord. It doesn't say, and he, Abraham, did this and this and this and this. It says, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. It's a free gift. We didn't do anything to get it. So in response to that, to seeing um, and to recognizing God's love and buying into and being sold out for the fact uh, of who He says that we are, in response to that, we change. We begin to love Him. And we want to do good and we want to do right because we're different. And we look at things different. And we do have the God goggles on. So we're going to be in chapter 5 today. In the first, particularly um, in the first part of chapter 5, 
Paul gives us, and he does this throughout chapter 5, but he gives us some more ways that we ought to act as believers, more ways that our claim to be a Christ follower, how that ought to play out right in our lives. But today I don't want to focus on those what's. I want to focus on the why's. Four or five reasons that Christians ought to act right. Four or five reasons that Christians ought to be different. So let's jump in. Starts right out, right at the beginning of verse 5. Number one point, does everybody have a worship God? If you don't have a worship God, I want you to have one. Raise your hand and we'll get one in your hands. But the first point is this. As beloved children, we imitate our daddy. That's the first reason. Beloved children, we imitate our daddy. Look at verse 1. Therefore, and it, the therefore is pushing us back to all the things that he said in chapter 4. So therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Imitate means that we act like him. The word is mimitis. Imitator. We get the word mimic from that word. And so we want to mimic, we want to imitate God. But look, guys, think about this. Answer this question. Do you think that you can imitate him, that you can mimic him enough to become his child? The answer is no. You cannot imitate him enough to become his child. You can't mimic him enough to become his child. You mimic him because you as a believer are already his child. You can't do it enough to become his child. And I think I've told you this story one time before, but I'm going to tell it to you again. My oldest son, Zach, he's 26 now, getting ready to be 27 now. When he was about three and a half years old, flip the next slide. He's about three and a half years old. He had this habit. He had this habit. We're looking at this before church today. And one of our members of the worship team, they look at that picture, and the only thing they notice is, who bought that wallpaper? And I'm like, really? But anyway, this is, this is Zach when he was three and a half. And he had this habit. He always would not, he wouldn't close the bathroom door when he went to the potty. And so he's sitting in there on the commode, door open, and he ha he's three and a half now. You ain't doing a whole lot of reading when you're three years old. So, but he's got like the Synovus Annual Report or something that he's reading. And I was at work, and Susan walks by, and she says, what are you doing? Like, what, are you, what have you got in your hands? What are you doing? He says, I'm reading my reports the way Daddy does. And so, look, Zach was not imitating. Well, in all transparency, I do read when I'm on the potty. But Zach was not. Zach was, that was way too much information, way too much. But Zach was not imitating me to become my son. Right? He was imitating me because he already was my son. See, most religions teach that if you imitate your deity, your God, whoever and whatever your God is, the sun God, the moon God, whatever, whatever your God is in that religion, if you Im most religions teach if you imitate him, then you'll become his child. And the gospel says imitate God because you're his child. You've had a heart transplant, and now you desire what he desires. So yes, imitate him, but even more than that, I need his heart. I want his heart. I want to love what it is that he loves. I want to care of in the deepest places in my heart. I want to care about what it is that he cares about. I want to learn to love righteousness the way that he loves righteousness. Well, okay, you ask how in the world does that work? He produces that, y'all. He produces that in us when he saves us. As his Holy Spirit comes to reside in our heart, as He comes to live inside of us, He helps us to see 
how truly, uh, how much truly he loves us, how truly he cares about us. And he, and he shows us and he impresses upon us the, the, the huge, the ginormous great lengths that he went to rescue us. And then he lets us know who we truly are in him. And when we start to get our arms around this word beloved in verse 1, that we are his beloved children, and when we begin to kind of understand really what that means, that we are his beloved children, not his tolerated children, not his children that he just kind of puts up with, know that we're his beloved children. When we get that, we will begin at least to, at least begin to mimic him. In every situation, I'm going, to try, I'm going to begin to ask, how is it that God would feel about this? How, how, how does it make him feel that I'm watching this movie? What about this joke? What about this attitude? What about this language? Whatever it is that I'm saying. How I'm speaking in, to Susan and, and speaking to Zach and Will. How does he feel about this relationship? How does he feel about what it is that I'm saying and doing? So number one is this, we mimic him. And then the second reason, the second why, is in verse 2. And we walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We live our lives sacrificially and with love for others because that's what Jesus did for us for the last couple of weeks. We've talked about taking off the old self and putting on the new self and taking off them old nasty clothes and putting on some new clean clothes and being a new creation as a believer. And when you do this, you can get overwhelmed with, uh, with the love that the Lord shows you. When you dig into the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you dig into the Gospels, you can just see this theme of love that just busts through. He did it with the woman in John 8, this adulterous woman. The religious leaders had, had brought her, and the religious leaders had said, this woman, this adulterous woman, uh, that the law said to stone her. And when you read it, you can almost feel, in John chapter 8, you can feel her anxiety, and you can feel um, the, her humiliation, and you can feel the condemnation that they're all throwing at her. But Jesus, rather than joining in all of that, he spoke to her as his beloved daughter. That's the way he spoke to her, as his beloved daughter child. And he turns it around on these religious leaders, the Pharisees. He, he turns it around on them and they hit the road. And Jesus is like, oh, well, where did they go? Where did all the accusers go? Where did the folks that were condemning you and humiliating you, where did they go? And he looks at her and he tells her, he said, I got, only, I got nothing but love for you. There's not any condemnation here. There's not any humiliation here. I got nothing but love for you. Now go and sin no more. So yes, Go and act right, he tells her. But go and act right because of the crazy love that I have for you. You see this love um, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's got uh, he's sweating blood. And when you see it when the Roman whips just rip his flesh apart. And you see it when they're nailing these big, heavy, iron square nails through his wrists and through his, through his ankles. And he's left there on the cross to die. What jumps off the page of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in that is the crazy sacrificial love that that, that that image paints. So here's what happens. If you are changed by Jesus, you show that. 
by sacrifice, by serving other folks, by, by loving on people in the community, by meeting needs, by leveraging your story. Because every one of you, if you're a believer, you have a story by leveraging that story for somebody else. And if none of that is evident, if you don't live like that, even remotely live like that, then, well, it's kind of evidence that you've never, you personally have never experienced God's love. There's a book Tim Keller wrote. The name of the book is uh, Generous Justice. And he says this. He says, A life poured out in deeds of mercy is the inevitable sign of a life which has experienced the grace of God. If you have experienced grace, if you have experienced love that you totally did not deserve, and you have experienced that, you really can't not pour that back out on some level. Now, reason number three, the, 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 the third why Christians ought to act right is because a life of impurity and covetousness, it doesn't fit with people who love and who are loved by God. It just, it just doesn't fit. Look at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And that word proper here, it means it doesn't fit. It means it doesn't really belong. It doesn't go with. Sexual immorality and covetousness, they don't jive with God's character. They don't jive with the character of a Christ follower. It's this round peg, square hole thing so why is it that they don't fit? Look, sex should not be selfish. And by that I mean that you don't just do this because it meets a need in your life. There is a oneness that happens and that oneness should all also exist in all of the other areas of your life. Spiritual, emotional, every other avenue, every other uh, area of your life you become a complete part of that other person for life. When it's done outside of marriage, and I'm talking about marriage, one man and one woman forever. When it's done outside of marriage, you're taking the physical from them without giving the rest of you to them. It is absurdly self-serving. You're saying to them, I'm yours, but it's a lie because the rest of you is not theirs. And then you say... Maybe, but I love them. Well, okay, then marry him. I love her. Well, then marry her. Truly become one. And the reality is this, and you and I know this, that if you are doing this outside of the covenant of marriage, it is so much easier to just get up, walk away, and hit the road. Look, the reality is this. Sex is a powerful thing, and it is a gift. It is a gift from God. And in the right context, it is an amazing amazing blessing but outside of that context it is it is selfish and it's destructive and in fact Paul says um, in this verse he says it shouldn't even be named among you there shouldn't even be a hint of it he says and not a hint means you don't even flirt with it sometimes the question from teenagers can be well how far is too far do I maybe need to round first but I'm not gonna go for the double you know where is it that I run foul what, where, where do I stop? And if that's the question, you really are missing the point if that is a question that you ask. Because you're trying to see how close can I get to the impurity without falling into the impurity. 
And the point is this, to be as pure as possible. And look, I ain't stupid. And I get, contrary to popular opinion, I ain't stupid. And I get that, that if you're in a relationship that is headed towards marriage, the occasional show of affection is not all inappropriate, but there is a difference, y'all. And you know what I'm talking about. I'm saying that you don't need to, you, you don't need to be lighting a rocket that you don't intend to launch. That's what I'm saying. Not even a hint means not even a hint. Got a few chuckles out of that one. Verse 4 says this, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Not even a hint means that you don't even talk about and joke about improper sexual things. I don't think, because in the context that this is written, he's not talking about uh, the improper joking and crude joking and that stuff. He's not talking, y'all, about booger jokes. And he's not talking about flatulence jokes. That's not what he's talking about. In fact, I'll tell you a story. Shocker. I don't know if you know what this is. It's, this is about 15 years old, and I'm not sure if it'll work or not, but we're going to try it. Nope, it's not working. Let me try it one more time. Nope, it's not working. This is a machine that simulates the sound of a toot. <laughs> so, me and Zach and Will and Susan were up in North Georgia doing something. We were coming back through, and, and when she wasn't looking, me and Zach and Will bought this. They were about 9 and 12 years old, and we landed in an academy sports in Dawsonville, Georgia, I think. And so, Susan's off looking at something, and uh, me and Zach and Will, we put it underneath a clothing rack, and it had a, has a remote control, which I couldn't find, or I was going to put it under Nancy Brim's seat. <laughs> but but she's not here, so I couldn't put it. I'll put it under your seat. So, But anyway, we put it under this rack, and we're hiding over here behind the shoes or something, and this man, this like man walks up, and, and he's looking at clothes, at shirts on this side, and then this woman walks up, real prim and proper, like, you know, soccer mom woman walks up, and she's looking at shirts, and about that time, we hit that remote and whoop, and I mean that man looked at that woman like this and she looked at him like that like it we were rolling in the aisles laughing it was so funny for like an hour we're walking around academy we put it in shoe boxes I mean we put it all we put it, we snuck it by one of the cashiers and when somebody got up in line we made that person think the cashier ripped one it was the funniest thing ever and Susan is just like why is that funny to guys it, it, I don't know. It just, it just is. That's not what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 5. He's talking about sexual immorality. Sex is sacred, y'all. It is sacred. We don't need to be joking about sexual immorality. In other words, we don't need to be making jokes that objectify women or degrade women talking about sex with women that aren't our wives. Our language as a believer should be different. What we say should be different. Feel free to talk about flatulence all you want. But we don't need to, it needs to be different in, in this subject. Different than people who are enslaved to sensual lust. Instead, we should be, uh, we should sound at least like people who rejoice in and love 
the Lord, verse 3 again says this, but sexual immorality and all impurity or, or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. In verse 3, the other thing that, that, that there shouldn't even be a hint of is covetousness. Pleonexia is covetousness. It's intensely desiring something. It's intensely longing for something to the point that you just cannot live without it. It's more than just wanting something. Pleonexia is longing for something where it jumps in front of everything else in your life to include God. And it is insulting. It is insulting to Him for you to sit around all the time and covet things that you think would make you happy. Keyword think would make you happy is an insult to God. The very next verse he calls it idolatry. We let something step into the role of God in our lives. The Lord and His presence ought to be the one thing, the only thing that we absolutely must have to be content in life. When you think, i got to make this much money, or i got to, man, did you see Tito's car? i got to have me one of those. Did you see their house? Like, I've got to have a house like that. All, if that's my attitude, y'all, it is improper because it is insulting to God. It, it is a slap in His face because you've given His place to something else in your life. Discontentment is a huge problem today. And it always, always, always begins and is wrapped around what somebody else has. It is always comparing. Let me give you just a little something. Write this down. Comparison is the death of joy. Comparison is the death of joy. And the world and the culture and the society we live in, it is comparison based on steroids. All of social media is comparison based. And it is so unhealthy. Real reality is this. Contentment is being just as happy driving that old jalopy that you had in school as it is driving a Range Rover because either way you got wheels. Contentment is being just as happy with the two-bedroom apartment that you used to have as you are with a $400,000 house because either way you got a roof. Either way you got a roof. Contentment is, is being just as happy with a, with a hot dog as you would with a steak because either way you're not starving. Contentment's being just as happy with a a $10 dress from Walmart as you would with a $1,000 dress from, from, I don't, from the blue door or something. Either way, you've got clothes on your back because contentment is realizing that God has met every need in your life. Comparison is the death of joy. Verse 4 says, instead of all of that, instead of all of that, let there be thanksgiving, verse 4 says. Paul's saying be thankful in all circumstances, wherever you are and whatever you're going through and whatever you have or you don't have, be thankful because the presence of the Lord is inside of you as a believer. So the third reason that we ought to be living, uh, acting right is that this a life of impurity and covetousness, it just doesn't fit the life of a Christ follower. And I've told you all a bunch of times in the last year and a half that we're not going to skip around and over and bounce by difficult passages. And the fourth reason, which is in verse 5, is a tough one. I think the fourth reason that we should act a certain way as a Christ follower is that it is a salvation check. It's a salvation check. Look at verse 5. For you may be sure of this, Paul says. You can take it to the bank. That's what Paul is saying. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom. 
Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It's, he's talking about continuous action, okay? Don't forget, he's talking to the church here. And evidently, here and in Corinth and Colossae, you had a bunch of folks who thought that they had an inheritance in the kingdom. He's talking about salvation, okay? That they had an inheritance in the kingdom, but their lives were characterized, okay? This is, we're not talking about you committed a sin. We're talking about their lives uh, were characterized by everything in those preceding verses. Sexual immorality, covetousness, lying, cheating, stealing, all of the things that he talked about about midway from chapter 4 until this point. These are folks that, that thought, uh, yeah, I'm going to get my dose of God on Sundays because it makes me feel good because I want to go to church because it makes me feel good. But the rest of the week I'm going to keep doing whatever I'm doing because it just ain't no big deal. And here's the big deception. This is an age-old deception, and it is a lie straight out of the pit of hell. And that is this, that you can be a Christian and continue in, a, in an habitual lifestyle of sin. And you may have even heard it this way. In a church somewhere, accept Jesus. Y'all, accept Jesus. Pray this prayer. Got to get you to pray the prayer. And then maybe one day you'll learn to listen to him. No. Paul says it plainly. You can't be a Christian and continue to practice idolatry and chase after sin. You can't. They don't go together, y'all. And I'm not talking about being perfect. I promise I'm not. Don't walk out here thinking or sinless. That is not at all what I'm talking about, and that's not what Paul is talking about. That's not the way the words um, are organized, so to speak, in the, in the text. Just look at the rich young ruler in, in Luke chapter 18. This guy, it's a great story. Moral guy, religious guy, wealthy sort of, all the advantages kind of guy. He could have helped build us a church and he could have been a growth group leader and he could have been an elder. And Jesus turns this guy away because he saw that there was a condition of his obedience. There was a con his, his obedience to Christ was conditional. This guy would let Jesus be the Lord of everything in his life except his money. And Jesus said, if I can't be Lord of all, then I'm not the Lord at all. And so he tells this guy, he says to this guy, renounce all you have and follow me. And he is not saying, so don't walk out here and think this either. He's not saying that every follower of Jesus needs to just get rid of all your possessions. But what he's saying is this, that following Christ means that nothing, nothing can ever get in the way of that relationship and obedience to the Lord. And if God commands you to give it all to the poor, then you give it all to the poor. When he says tithe, you tithe. If he tells you to quit a pretty good job at Coal Banker and preach the word, then you quit the job at Coal Banker and preach the word. If he tells you to go to Africa, buy a plane ticket and go to Africa. If he tells you you shouldn't be dating this boy or you shouldn't be sleeping around in this way, then obey him. Other religions teach that if you do more good than bad, then you're fine. The gospel says the only way to come to God is with complete, unconditional surrender. Surrender. We don't want to surrender. We think something's on the other side of surrendering that's not. You know what's on the other side of surrendering? Total, true, authentic freedom. Freedom is on the other side of surrendering. Not a life in chains and shackles. True, honest-to-God freedom. 
And then he goes on in verse 6. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Empty words. There's um, packed into that word empty is a lack of truth, is a lack of reality, is meaninglessness and worthlessness and deception and falsehood and lies. All of that is packed into that, that word empty. Unfortunately, and this is where it's going to get difficult, but I'm not going to avoid difficult stuff, man. Lots of churches have grown huge audiences by preaching empty words. And I'm not talking about necessarily a lie that's 90 degrees off of the truth. It can just be a little bit off. But lots of churches have grown huge audiences preaching empty words. You hear the words, accept Jesus. But do you really get what that means? It gets said, y'all, sometimes like, like if Jesus is sitting around and he needs for you to accept him. He's the Lord. He's the Lord. We need him and his forgiveness. Not the other way around. I heard a guy say this one time, and he said it like all, like it was all holy or something. He said, I've accepted him as my Savior, but just not my Lord. What? Y'all, he's not the salad bar at Jason's. That's not the way it works. He can't be your Savior if he's not your Lord. It doesn't work that way. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 3. Paul is telling Timothy, he's teaching Timothy how to lead a body of believers. Paul's teaching Timothy in First and Second Timothy and, and Titus in the book of Titus. He's teaching them, he's instructing them on how to lead a group of believers. And he says to Timothy, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. The time is coming that people aren't going to listen. They're, they don't want to hear sound doctrine. They don't want to hear the truth. And then he says, But having itching ears... They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In other words, they're, they're, they, they're going to go find somebody to tell them what they want to hear to make them feel good, right? Paul tells Timothy, 2,000 years ago, y'all, Paul said this. They have itching ears to accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And then he says to Timothy, young preacher, Timothy, as for you, and this is a timeless truth that Paul is speaking to every person that has preached the gospel since the cross. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, preach the gospel. That is what Paul is saying to Timothy. And fulfill your, your ministry. Maybe we pastors have tickled ears with fluffy messages with empty words to fill up seats. Maybe so, and look, if that is the case, and this is the cold start reality, if that is the, the case, then the seats are full of people that have no inheritance in the kingdom. And that's a scary, scary deal. Some of us have played games with God for years, months, weeks, years, I don't know. We've never seriously come to a place where we surrendered to Christ and allowed Him to be our Lord and Savior. And if that's the case, if that's the case, there is no inheritance in the kingdom. Now, y'all don't freak out because I'm not talking about you got to hear this. I'm not talking about those of us that genuinely struggle with sin. Put me in the front of that line. I'm talking about genuinely struggling with sin. I'm talking about those who belong to God but stubbornly refuse or think they belong to God but they stubbornly refuse to give up whatever the adulterous relationship, the habitual life of sin or lying 
or still, whatever it is, that habitual, their life is characterized by deceit or whatever. If, if you are struggling with sin, the Holy Spirit is convicting you of that. Y'all, and the Holy Spirit doesn't live inside someone that's not a believer. So if there's a struggle with sin, it's an indication that you are saved, not that you are not saved. Does that make sense? I want to make sure that I explain that right. Where there is no struggle with sin, where you're just shaking your fist at God and saying, I'm going to do whatever I want to because it feels good, that's a different deal, y'all. Here's the warning, because there's a real warning here. Repentance. And that's a churchy word, but there's no other way to say it. Repentance is an integral part of coming to the cross. And if you have never genuinely repented, then I'm going to say your salvation is in question. In other words, if you were honest with me and we were in a conversation and you looked me in the eyes and you said, no, I've never repented, I ain't got nothing to repent for, then I'm just in my own mind in concluding that you have no inheritance in the kingdom. Stop playing games with God because He's not stupid. You're not going to fool Him. I'm not going to fool Him. Repentance is a big part of this um, of this deal. And look, I want to share my heart with you, closing out with this. My prayer every Sunday, because every Sunday morning before any of y'all get here, I go in that room, and maybe you don't even know it. I've said this before, but there's somebody in there right now praying. There's somebody in there praying for y'all every single Sunday the whole time that we're in worship. But I'm in there every Sunday morning before y'all get here, and, 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 I'm, I'm gonna, and I'm on my knees praying. And, 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 and my prayer is like this. It's, Lord, let me speak the truth. Let me speak the truth with compassion, but let me speak the truth. Let me not have, uh, let me not preach empty words. Let me not preach meaningless, worthless words. Lord, bring my, and my prayer like is, is I am so thousand percent inadequate for this job on my own. Lord, let me just say what you would have for me to say. Bring the people into this building that need to hear your word. Let the people listening online be people that are listening and need to hear your words. Lord, let me never, ever preach words that lull people into a false sense of security. Y'all, that is my fear. And my fear is this, that there are people all across, and we need to pray for them, all across our great country, in churches all over the place, that as we sit here, they're hearing a feel-good message, a motivational speech this morning with very little biblical truths. Just something to make them feel good because their ears are itching so they found somebody to listen to, to to scratch the itch in their ears. And what you end up with there, man, you end up with throngs of people who think they're saved and they're not. And I'm going to say this again. If you're struggling with sin, it's an indication that you are saved, not that you're not. The Holy, it's the Holy, because it's the Holy Spirit that is doing the convicting there. So today we talked through four reasons, four why reasons, why we ought to act right. And the big message is this, and it has been for the past few weeks. It is a heart issue. And so my question for y'all is, have you had a heart transplant? Or have you been playing games around with God for years and years? And so if you've never said yes to that offer, I would ask you to consider that today. And built on um, on a renewing of the mind and a change of the heart. Not an unintelligent faith. No. Paul says, transform your mind. 
and your heart will change. Acknowledge that you're a sinner. If you've never done this, y'all, acknowledge that you're a sinner, repent of the sin, and believe that Jesus paid for it once and and for all. Surrender to him and invite him to live inside of you. Y'all close your eyes if you would. Bow your heads. And if that is you today, just say this with me. But it's got to be real. It's got to be real. You're not buying a fire insurance policy and then just walk forgetting about it until next Sunday. But it's, Lord, I am a sinner, and I acknowledge that. And, Lord, I invite you, excuse me, I invite you into my heart. I invite you into my life. I want you to save me. And I even acknowledge that I'm really not worth saving, but that's the whole point. So it's, Lord, I repent of my sin and I believe that that your death on that cross paid the penalty uh, and redeemed me and bought me from that sin and rescued me from that pit. And so, Lord, I invite you into my life. Save me and I will serve you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. So look, y'all, if you did that, if that was you today, then fill out one of those connection cards that's in that seat back in front of you. Stick it in the offer bucket or give it to somebody at the connections desk. We've got a prayer station back there that folks would love, people on our prayer team would love to pray with you, pray for you. Whatever that looks like for you, please go back there or talk to me or something um, because you need that. We all need that. We need to lock arms together.